now listen to full-length, commercial-free episodes of the Divorcing Religion podcast on Patreon. Please sign up at patreon.com forward slash Janice Selby or click the link in the show notes. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Divorcing Religion podcast. I'm your host, Janice Selby. I'm a registered professional counselor and a religious recovery consultant. And I am very pleased today to have a friend of mine joining us on the show, Dr. Clint Haycock. Thank Dr. you, Haycock. Janice. You're welcome. I want to tell yes. them a little bit about you because oh, I right. find your journey quite interesting. Dr. Haycock is an ex-evangelical pastor and Bible college teacher of over 20 years. He's now committed to helping people who have left cults or religion unpick the indoctrination, mind control, and conditioning and take back their lives. Uh, Clint also spoke at the Conference on Religious Trauma earlier this year, and you folks might recognize him from his excellent podcast, Mind Shift, and that's how we actually met each other, was uh, when you interviewed me when I had first developed the Divorcing Religion Workshop, and uh, we started talking more and more, and I was recommending guests for you, and you were a real encouragement to me as I was developing the Conference on Religious Trauma, and then you even came, you stopped over in Canada and brought your sister, and we had a lovely visit together a couple of years back. Uh, it's just been a really great um, intersection, the way our paths have crossed. It really has. I think you've been on my podcast more than any one person. Yay! So that you hold <laughs> you hold that singular honor. Or that might be, I don't know if it's an honor or what. It certainly is. And I still really get so much value uh listening to your podcast because you, I mean, the guests that you've had had on there have really helped educate me as a Canadian about what America is like and what's going on in America and and you know, the different guests um, like Kurt Anderson and different authors that you've had on there talking about the rise of Christian nationalism. That is stuff that everybody needs to know. That's affecting people in real time. And you've been out there with a megaphone letting people know. So I really appreciate you're doing a great service with the MindShift podcast. Thank you very much. I think that's my kind of wiring to be a teacher that's what i am a teacher by by sort of profession and by wiring so mm -hmm. what i do is i love reading books i love researching for myself and then i love to share that with other people so when i read a good book that i think oh this person would make a fantastic guest yeah. most of the time i find they are willing to talk about i've only had one person who turned around and said no you, you don't have a big enough platform, basically, is what I won't name who it is. But, wow. uh, yeah. you know, otherwise, I've had really, really good luck, I should say, finding guests that from yes. books and articles that I've read on online and things. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. if I can share that with the world and help amplify their message, you know, it's a win-win, isn't it? As well as what you were saying about your work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's good. We're both doing a service. And your background, um, your parents... Uh, bought into the IBLP, uh, Bill Gothard, all that stuff. When mm -hmm. you were already, um, you had already had a childhood that was in regular school. Is that right? Or tell me, tell me again. Yes, that's true. So I was raised in a very Christian fundamentalist home. 
luckily I, I look at it now my parents didn't homeschool us because mm-hmm. what you're what you're referring to is the bill gothard i call it a cult yes it was called it was called institute in basic youth conflicts when i was a kid oh, back wow. in the 70s right. it's now changed to institute in basic life principles right. but yes they, they do have a homeschooling arm called ati advanced training institute which mm-hmm. a lot of people i've talked to have gone through that as well Mm-hmm. But but they tried to raise us according to Bill Gothard's sort of child rearing and marriage principles. Right. So I view it as a cult. But yeah, I switched over to a Christian day school when I was in fifth grade. So I went to a public school uh, up until fourth grade, and then we switched over. And then I was in Christian high school all the way through all the way through graduation, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then at what point? Um, did you start wondering? And even before that, did you balk? Was it like, I just finished speaking with um, Jerusha Laughlin, who was also a speaker at the Conference on Religious Trauma, and mm-hmm. her parents, uh, she was homeschooled from the get-go, and she said every time her folks went away to a Gothard conference and they'd come back, she'd lose another privilege or another, you know, that she'd lose TV and then she'd lose being able to wear pants. She could only wear dresses, you know, and then she couldn't listen to Christian music, all that kind of <laughs> stuff. Was that a similar experience for you or did you buy in right from the start? Well, I was raised in it and that's the difference. So I've done podcasts with my sister, Valerie, whom you've mm-hmm. met, as you say, a few years back before COVID, we went up to Vancouver from Seattle, where we're both from, had a fantastic pub lunch with a bunch of people. <laughs> yeah. You guys came down from Kelowna. Was, that was one of the highlights of my whole trip to Seattle, really. It was. Yeah. But Valerie was raised, she was raised in a really slightly different situation because when she was a young girl, my parents weren't in the Gothard thing. They were Christians. Mm-hmm. But then at a certain point, when she was about nine or 10, they started mm-hmm. attending the conferences changing their marriage, changing their childbearing strategy. So she saw a very discreet before and after, and it wasn't for the better. It was a change not for the better in her Mm -hmm. view. Mm -hmm. From my point of view, I was raised in it. So I never had a choice. I thought this was normal. Mm -hmm. It's just normalized. Mm -hmm. And so you don't know any different. So I just believed it. I thought that's the way it was. Mm -hmm. And I never, you didn't question anything growing up. That was kind of the way it was. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And so um, then you uh, did the Christian thing and you went to Bible college and you got yes, your uh, Bible. And not only did you go to Bible college, you got your Ph.D. in theology. Right. Yeah. Yes, I did. That's a big deal. That speaks to a very high level of both indoctrination and commitment. It is true. And I went I did a couple of master's degree along the way as well. So I was really I was in education as a student for about 14 years straight. So I went straight through Bible college, straight through, I did an MA at seminary, took about a year off, and then went back and did a THM, which is kind of halfway between a Master of Arts and a PhD. And then a few years later, we moved over here to the UK, where I did my PhD in biblical studies and preaching. So yeah, I was a a professional student. Yeah. But yeah, (laughs) I was trying to figure it all out. Now I look back on it, I think a lot of my quest for studying Greek, studying Hebrew, studying theology was a way to figure my my own faith out. Mm-hmm. I thought if I could read Greek, if I can read Hebrew, I can really get to the heart of the Bible, you know, and really figure out how to translate the text in the most accurate way and mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. And I found out the deeper you dive into it, actually, the more sort of vagaries you come up with because yeah. there's so many manuscripts and so many, yeah, it's just a mm-hmm. whole mess there, but mm-hmm. it's not as straightforward as I thought. And, and at what point um, did you get married? 
okay, so I got married when I was 25. So mm-hmm. I was living in Seattle, playing mm-hmm. in Christian metal bands. This was before okay. we went to Bible college. But I had this dream to go to Bible college and be some sort of a either a pastor or a teacher. I knew I wanted mm-hmm. to be, quote, unquote, in ministry, right. as it were. So when I met my now ex-wife, but mm-hmm. Lisa, I was playing in this Christian band. Her brother was the bass player in this Christian metal band. And even then, that was our way of being, you know, missional. We were going to be rockers for God, you know. Yeah. So it was even the even the context of us getting mar- getting married and meeting was all about we're going to be missionary. We're going to be missional, you know. So even if it was going and playing bars and clubs, secular yeah. clubs, yes. we were going to rock for Jesus, you know. We yeah. were kind of like, yeah, back in the days of Striper and all those oh. kind of big Striper. Christian bands. Yeah. Yellow and Black Attack. Yeah, we used to see them every year. I, I used to see the Resurrection Band, Daryl Vance, oh, band. all those bands. Yeah. Every year, we were huge into all that. We learned loads of their songs, mm-hmm. yeah. played a lot of their songs, you know, so mm-hmm. I was in that kind of culture in the 80s, mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. And and But Lisa wasn't born into it. She came into it later. Is that right? Into That's true, yeah. religion. So her brother and I met or, yeah, I met her brother in high school. He was a year younger than me. Right. We played yeah. soccer or football, as they say, in this country, but and everywhere else in the world. I think everywhere else out of North America. But yes. yeah, we played soccer together. He was the goalkeeper. I played on I played soccer with him. And so then we developed a love for music and got into bands together. That's where I met Lisa. Oh wow. But okay. he got saved at our Christian high school where we attended. And then he kind of dragged his whole family into it, I should say. Mm-hmm. Now, looking back on it, uh, he's still very much into it. He's a pastor in the Seattle wow. area, very much into it. And wow. she and I have since deconstructed quite a bit, yeah. which was fortunate in the sense that even though our marriage is over, um, it, it wasn't for that particular reason. Right. You know, a lot of people, they de- one partner will deconstruct, and we've talked about this before, mm-hmm. where one will stay, you know, double down in the faith. Yeah. And at least we didn't have that problem. Right. We had other issues, but we, that wasn't one of them. Yeah, yeah. And so you were able to be a support to each other as you mm-hmm. were picking apart all that um, religious training and conditioning. So you Very much so. went all through, uh, well, through the first part of your schooling, and then for the last leg, uh, related to your PhD, you guys moved to Wales. Well, we moved, yeah, we moved to Chester, which is in the northwest of England. Okay. It's up near Liverpool. I went to the University of Chester, but then we slowly started migrating further and further out to North Wales, which is where I'm at now. I've been in this place for about six or seven years. So we're way out in the country. Absolutely love it. It's oh, a long good. drive, but mm-hmm. it's a 500-year-old house. It's incredible. <gasps> oh, I mean, my goodness. People I that come, come and visit. stay here. I know. There's a place for you here, Janice, anytime. <laughs> Free lodging. And, and you had um, you had your daughters along the way. Yes. And so do does everybody live in Wales now? No. So... When we first moved here, we all moved in Chester, which is right in that northwest area. Yeah. Now, my girls, one of them lives in Leicester. The other one lives up in Leeds, which is up in the northeast, I guess you could say, up above Manchester. And the other one's down near Birmingham. So, And then my ex-wife has since moved down to Leicester. So when we split up, it was a couple of years ago, she's moved down. So she's closer to my youngest daughter now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and so... Uh... When did and how did your deconversion all come about? Like, at what point were you starting to question things? 
Well, this is something I learned from a mutual friend of ours, Dr. Marlene Winnell, mm-hmm. who, you know, I think she was on my podcast basically off of your recommendation. Yes. So that was really good. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, she's kind of semi-retired now, so she doesn't really do a whole lot. But mm-hmm. anyway, when I went through her book, um, Leaving the Fold, which I highly recommend for people who come out of controlling high demand fundamentalist religious groups, mm-hmm. she said something that just absolutely rocked my world. She said, every time when you were in that religion, that you had a question or a doubt, what that actually is, it's your authentic self sort of asserting itself. So every time I had, I did have lots of questions about the Bible and about God and theology and the belief system that I was a part of, that was actually, as I see it now, my authentic self. But it was covered with a veneer of the religious self, which I had formed to fit into the church, and that's all I really ever knew growing Mm -hmm. up in it. So Mm -hmm. I see it now. I had lots and lots of doubts, but they were always... There was always an answer in air quotes, you know, apologetics and things like that. So, you know, you have a question about the resurrection or the Bible, the inerrancy of scripture, and it could be anything. Someone's got an answer for it. And -hmm. I would be, you know, satisfied for the time being. So I really see it as a a long, long process of questioning things over the course of probably my whole life. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't until I was a pastor of a church down in Portland, I started reading a lot of progressive Christian authors like Rob Bell, Brian McLaren, Donald Mm -hmm. Miller, that I see now. That was a big step in my deconstruction because I started started jettisoning a lot of my fundamentalist beliefs. And that was a very necessary step in that journey. I didn't fully deconvert at that time, but I needed to go through that stage Mm -hmm. to slowly walk myself out of the fundamentalism. Mm-hmm. Oh boy, I remember when um, <laughs> when when Rob Bell and uh, Brian, uh, what's his name, when their when Brian their work, McLaren, Brian yeah. McLaren, when their work started coming out, and we were on the uh, very conservative Bible College campus at that time, and we were sounding the alarm about, oh no, young people, don't don't be reading these books; they're just gonna they're oh, not yeah. gonna lead anywhere good. And now I'm like, no yeah. brother. <laughs> I know. I remember that book, uh, Love Wins, that Rob Mm -hmm. Bell came out with years ago. Right. right. It was kind of like a universalist argument that sort of everyone goes to heaven and in the end Mm -hmm. and love wins. That book caused a firestorm in the evangelical fundamentalist. And I actually started reading the book review. I wrote an article about the book reviews of Love Wins, (laughs) which is really interesting to see the reactions. There was one guy from the Southern Baptist Convention that wrote a 10-page book review refuting it of course yeah i've never seen a 10-page book review but he wrote a 10-page to refute every possible heresy in the book love wins you know so i thought that's that it's got to say something about the reactionary stance Mm. that these fundamentalists are taking to the book yeah me thinks he doth protest too much (laughs) we're coming out with a 10-page book review um and so uh you started you started questioning and not finding adequate answers to the questions that you had. And at that time, were you still pastoring? Yes. And that got me into, as you can imagine, a lot of trouble. Toward the end of my pastoral tenure, I was there at the church in Portland for, I think I was there 12 years. I was an elder, then I became a pastor, then I became the head pastor. And then Um, I was introducing a lot of these concepts in my sermons and different ways in the context of the church, which, of course, led immediately to conflict. I can remember one time I was teaching a class on the book of Genesis, and I brought up a book that uh, from a professor that I had, actually. And, I mean, the class just erupted 
and into an argument. I've never seen anything like it. The minute I introduced some of the concepts from this book, which was kind of a progressive idea, yes. look at the first couple chapters of Genesis. Yeah. I mean, we had a, a, a huge firestorm on our hands uh, and we were in, in the middle of an argument about, you know, you're denying the faith, you're d- denying creationism and blah, blah, wow. blah. So that shows you, again, the reactionary stance. So, as soon as you start questioning things, people get, they can get really, really upset. Wow. The torches and the pitchforks start oh, yeah. to come out. Yeah, that's, that is yeah. really, that's just so uncomfortable. That's uncomfortable for everybody in the situation. And yeah, so, and, mm-hmm, yeah, oh, was, it really caught me off guard because I was a sort of a new, new to teaching adults at that time. I was just yeah. an elder at the church and I was bringing all this information thinking they were going to be excited as I yeah, was, yeah. to learn a new take on the book of Genesis. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Boy, did Fool you get that, that wrong. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it, gosh. And it went all the way to the elder team at the top of the church. I mean, it caused, like, letters were written, and I was a heretic, and blah, 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 you know. So oh, it, that's my. what I mean. And that was wow. that was when I was still a pretty staunch evangelical. I was just trying to introduce a couple of new ideas. Right. Oh, mm. no. Oh, no. Oh, <laughs> wow. Don't um, you dare. So you moved from... Uh, quite fundamentalist to uh, into a more progressive stance yeah. or view uh, view of the Bible uh, and its interpretation, and then I mean, eventually, at some point, you found yourself on the other side, completely having divorced That's religion. It. Yeah, it's true. I mean, there's just it's. I think Dave Warnock, my good friend, you probably spoke with him as well, yeah. but he said it was like the death of a thousand cuts. It wasn't one cataclysmic event that I could point to and say that did it. Yeah. It was years and years of questioning things, not getting answers, then seeing the reactions, like I my my story of introducing this stuff in a Bible class. And then I t- I've talked about this before. I used to teach at a Bible college up in Leeds, and the stuff I was introducing again caused a lot of problems with the students and they would go to the head of the college and complain about me that I was basically not not a Christian and I couldn't be a Christian because I was getting them to question the Bible and those kind of experiences you know you stand back and think okay why are they so threatened Mm -hmm. when I'm these are actual academic ideas these are not I'm just not making this stuff up these have been observed by theologians and biblical scholars and you know academics and I'm trying to expose them to different points of view because that's what critical thinking is all about you have Mm -hmm. to weigh up different arguments look at the strengths and the weaknesses of each one assess them as objectively as you can and all the rest of it no it was an emotional reaction and i was a heretic i was you know not a christian and everything else and i do find um fundamentalism in whatever sphere we find it does tend to be more emotional it's much more about emotion and how we how we feel when we see others moving away from what we believe to be the truth rather than uh so it's it's every time curiosity has to be stamped out with obedience that's mm-hmm. what is prized that's what's the most important you know train up your children in the way they should go so when they're old they won't depart from it rather than actually welcoming curiosity and saying hmm well let's see what other people have had to say Mm -hmm. about this topic even people who don't who aren't christians other people who are intelligent people who have letters behind their name what how do they view it but that is just Mm -hmm. far too threatening when our identity is enmeshed with our ideology 
we just it's can't true. even go there. So yeah, there's something about that because it was funny because last Saturday, my girlfriend and I went out to where she lives, kind of a local town. They've got like an artisan market one Saturday a month. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's booths and everything set up in the middle of the town, really cool area. So we were sitting there and we came out of a store in the morning and there was a, a group of Christians that were evangelizing on the street. They had loudspeakers mm-hmm. and they were passing out tracts and everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she she's not she was raised without any religious background pretty much whatsoever. Isn't that so refreshing? It really is. Yeah, because <laughs> I explained, I have to interpret to her what's yes, going on, yes, you know. Yeah. So I said, look, there's some Christians. Do you want to track? You know, <laughs> she was like, oh, no way. <laughs> but then later they were packing up. So they left. Well, later we went and sat down and had lunch at this kind of pub. And I said, look, right across the way is a group of these, quote, truthers who are like anti-vax and a conspiracy yes. theory to yes, flat yes. earthers. And uh-huh. I said, you know, to me, the the truth table that's passing out tracks about COVID and it's all a yeah. hoax and pandemic, yeah. that's the, that makes someone to get to the point where they're actually willing to set up a table in a town center and proclaim their truth in air mm-hmm. quotes to the public that's that fundamentalism I think you were referring to, where Absolutely. not only am I right, it's not enough to believe that I'm right. I've got to prove that everyone else is wrong, mm-hmm. and I've got to show you the error of your ways, too. And I need to go out in the public square, if necessary, and do that. You know, mm-hmm. So you see that drive, and I thought, my God, I remember doing that kind of stuff, preaching on the streets, going yeah. to Africa and preaching mm-hmm. in the slums in Nairobi. Because we were convinced that we needed to save the world. Yes, yes. And it is. um, And so it helps me at least retain a little bit of compassion or at least keep my irritation from overwhelming me when dealing with um, conspiracy theorists who are exactly as uh like indoctrinated and deceived and thinking that that it's the truth and they of course think we are deceived and that's the exact same dynamic as between the believer and the non-believer when we're talking about uh religion and it seems like q QAnon is it presents like another religion like a new uh religion so it's we're living in such a polarized um time and i think that's one of the saddest things when i have so many clients coming to me saying how can i preserve my relationship with my parents or with Mm. my spouse now that i don't believe so now they are no longer a christian but their parents or their spouse are and not only that it's often that their parents and the church have embraced these conspiracies uh and so the things that they seem to have in common, the talking points that they used to have, they don't exist anymore because mm-hmm. you're always worried it's going to set the other person off. And people mm-hmm. wonder, well, how how can they maintain that um, relationship? And in fact, you and I, as the years have gone on and we've uh, left religion farther and farther behind, um, you and I both ended up ending our marriages or having our marriages and and that when we mm-hmm. marry in the church you know and for very christian uh reasons uh, and then we raise our kids also to think that way and then our kids kind of watch us deconstruct and they have to figure out for themselves what they believe and then they watch that our marriage also come to an end um that can be a really hard time for everybody it seems from the outside uh like 
you and Lisa have done pretty well. You still, you speak kindly of each other. You speak warmly yeah. of each other and you've just been able to uh, go on living your lives. The children still remain your connection to each other, your grown daughters. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we don't see each other now since she moved. Uh, it was about two and a half hours away. Mm-hmm. But um, we still have a WhatsApp family group chat, yes. which my girlfriend thinks is so strange. You know, oh, we have a family chat too, and I can't imagine yeah. not having it. And I said she, we were actually sitting at a pub a few months ago, and I, I was some a message came up on the WhatsApp chat, and I was chatting away, and she came and sat down. And she's like, "What the hell are you doing?" Because for her. She divorced her husband, and it was not a good marriage. It was very right. dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. So her, in her view, they they do share a son, so mm-hmm. they do have to kind of touch base once in a while when it concerns issues with the, their son. But in my case, I said it's not like that. Right. You know, it's it's we we are a family. Yes, we're not technically married, but we'll never change the fact that we still have two daughters together. And, and we 20 years of history or however, 30 however years, long you guys, yeah. 30 years. Over 30 wow. years we were wow. married. So you can't just throw that all the way. Well, you mm-hmm. could, I suppose, but we but wanted you can't to model, erase it. Yeah. We wanted to model to our daughters too, that it can be done, you know, and be amicable toward each yeah. other. Beautiful. And we still stay in touch. She mm-hmm. messaged me, Lisa messaged me the other day on WhatsApp and asked me about my podcast, Mike. You know, because she wants oh, a better yes. mic, you know, so yes. and I, I was just giving her some tips and advice, the things that I've learned over the years and stuff. Yes. And, you know, just simple things like that. But you think, oh, mm-hmm. I'm glad that she's thinking that that she could still ask me a simple question Absolutely. that we would have done when we were still married. Absolutely. You know, or it's if she just needs a, normal a hand thing. with something and it's your area of expertise with your woodworking. Yeah. Um, of course, you'll be happy to share with her. Uh, and that's I think that's the difference between. When Christians uh, divorce, it is so much viewed as a shameful failure. Mm -hmm. And when the rest of us divorce, it's a transition. It's not not a failure. It means, okay, things, our relationship is about to change and it'll look different uh, going forward. We're we're no longer lovers and connected by, uh, you know, the confines of of marriage. But there's no reason we can't be, um, still be friends. It just looks different. And that's also because... There wasn't abuse going on in our relationships. There are some relationships, some marriages, they have got to end for the safety and well-being of the partner and the children. I'm really glad that you guys have been able to um, just maintain a friendliness towards one another. I think it is a beautiful example to our children as well. It's true. It's possible. Well, and and like you said, when you take the, the, the religious component out of it, you can you can look at it exactly as you just described it. The marriage had basically irretrievably broken down for mm-hmm. a number of reasons. There wasn't nobody had an affair. There wasn't mm-hmm. any kind of abuse. Mm-hmm. We just drifted apart over the years, mm-hmm. and we were both not happy in the situation. We mm-hmm. finally sat down across from each other in the living room a few years mm-hmm. ago. Just yeah. we basically said, "Are you happy? No. Are you happy? No. Okay. That that we established that baseline." What does that mean now? Life is too short to live on in an unhappy relationship. Yes. It really is. Yeah. And we said, okay, if that's the case, what what does that mean? We probably should look at separating and see. Mm-hmm. And we did that as a trial for about mm-hmm. six months. Mm-hmm. And we said, we'll probably know within a few months if that's the right decision. And mm-hmm. we did. Within a few months, I turned around and said to her, 
are you happy being single living down there? Because she only lived about 45 minutes from me for the right. first year. Mm-hmm. And we, we actually shared a dog. So every weekend we, yes. we were meeting down. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. It was really crazy. It was like, <laughs> my girlfriend was like, what the hell are you guys doing? <laughs> but I suppose it was a way to kind of touch base once a week. And just, you yeah. know, even if it was to meet in a parking lot and give the dog to the other person. Mm-hmm. But we said, look, are you happy? Are you happier single and being on your own? And we're like, yeah, definitely. This was the right thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's just go ahead and put the paperwork together and, and make it formal then. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't any hard feelings, but there's no blame assigned. Like in the, in a biblical marriage, yeah. you have to say, okay, do you have biblical grounds for being married? Right. And right. in many cases, some churches will not allow it at all. They'll tell right. the abused woman mm-hmm. to stay in the relationship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. People like John Piper and others, no. you know, she has to endure the abuse for a season and then get help from the church. And, you know, it's just crazy. Mm-hmm. And I think it also relates to what you uh, alluded to. You said something to the effect that life is too short to stay, yeah. uh, you know, miserable or in a, in a, in a situation, marriage situation where you're not happy. But of course, religious people they don't see that this is the only life they see this is the human part of life but then we go on in the afterlife and you know we'll have somehow everything will be fine uh there so i feel like when i divorced religion i embraced reality and for Mm. me that meant things that can be um verified not not mm-hmm. just things based on somebody thinks this or it has a nice feeling if I because I when I left Christianity, I pitched my tent in the New Age camp and I was very happy there for a number of years. It felt freeing for me because I could explore these things that have been off limits before, you know, psychics and astrology and um afterlife, you know, kind of stuff. Um and then it got to a point where people were trying to tell me that they could channel these beings from other dimensions. Okay. I'm like, oh my God, this again, this again. That's what it Did felt this like. Already, too, yeah. too familiar. Been there, like done prayer. that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then I tongues. just exactly. Yeah. It's just felt basically too, oh, it yeah. was too much. In another name. <laughs> In another by another name. It really and is. It really people, is. People people didn't like it when I said, um, you know, I don't actually think you're channeling anything. I, I don't buy it. Yeah. I think it's, and they feel like it's very real. Like when I would speak in tongues, it felt very real to me. I felt super close to to the God that I thought existed at that time. I thought it was mm. a very big deal. Um, and so, of course, it's offensive to people when I would say to them, "You're, I don't think you're channeling anything. No, you're really not. And they don't want to hear that because then they don't feel special. And yeah. they want to feel like they have a connection to this wonderful, magnificent, um, ethereal, whatever it is. Uh, and at that point, that's when I really started going, you know what? I don't actually think I need any of this. <laughs> yeah. I don't have to maintain some kind of belief in spirituality. I I really don't. I'm mm-hmm. living for I'm living for today and for this life that I have. I hope I have several more years but if not i'm i'm just going to keep putting all my effort into the relationships around me not kind yeah. of banking things for heavenly uh hereafter stuff yeah it's so true your perspective changes and it's interesting to step back 
a year or two or three later and look back on that journey, you know, how, how far you changed. Cause you know, going out with my girlfriend now, we've been going out just over 10 months, so almost a year now. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't really looking for anything. It just sort of happened. And mm-hmm. one of them organic things, I think probably maybe what happened to you, I don't know, but we could probably talk about that somewhere else. But, um, you know, you find yourself in this relationship and sort of going through all this stuff. And, you know, I'll go stay the night at her house. She'll come stay here. So obviously there's a sexual component, which in the context of religion, that's evil and wrong because we're not married. And right. having to process all that mm-hmm. is so refreshing to say, okay, I don't feel the guilt and the shame mm-hmm. that I, I should be feeling because this is wrong and evil and against God's yeah. plan and we're not married and we're having an adulterous relationship. Right. Oh my God, you know? Right. And yet yeah. I don't feel any of that. Mm-hmm. And it's so refreshing to go, okay, I'm, why don't I feel that? <laughs> you know, yeah. because I, like you said, I've jettisoned all of that purity culture nonsense mm-hmm. that I was raised in. Mm-hmm. This would have been horribly wrong, you know, 30 years ago. Yes. Yes. And, and um, you have uh, a family member also who is a member of the LGBTQ plus yes. community. And, and so did that sort of unfold while you were still in the church or after you'd left? Yes. Well, my daughter is, she came out as gay probably 10 or 12 years ago. And of course we knew <laughs> you know, right. it wasn't a surprise okay. to anybody, but she had to do it on her own terms, which I think is a very common thing. Yeah. We suspected slash knew, I knew years and years before. But had you I and never, Lisa talked about it? Um. Yeah, we kind of skirted around the issue. You know, I wonder why she never seems to have a boyfriend and she seems to hang around with other sort of LGBTQ people at her high school. These seem to be her circle of friends. And mm-hmm. that doesn't necessarily mean that you're gay, obviously. Right. But you think, okay, you know what? Maybe there's something there. But when she finally came out, you know, she was absolutely petrified that we were going to disown her and everything mm-hmm. else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and more more concerned about some of our in-laws that were kind of staunch evangelicals. Right. But, um, and one of my sisters did, in fact, disown her. A fundamentalist, my oldest sister, basically just turned around and said, well, you know, you're going to hell and you've made a sinful choice and started trying oh, out all these awful. Bible verses. And, oh, you know, goodness. so you could see the reactions again. And were you out of the church by that time or in a more progressive uh, arm Yeah, of the definitely. Church? We were questioning a lot of things. I was definitely in that progressive sort of area because we we'd already li- we were already moving over here. We'd already lived over here, I should say, So when she came out. So we were questioning things. The church we were a part of, we were kind of on the way out anyway, you know. Mm-hmm. So it was an inter- that was an interesting journey for sure because uh, she she had to like I said she had to do it on her own terms. And once once she came out, we're like, well, of course we knew. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. This is not a secret, you know. And she was so relieved, you know. Why didn't you tell me that you knew? And I'm like, oh. well, you know, we couldn't, we couldn't. We obviously had to wait for you to feel like you were ready to to make it a public thing mm-hmm. and had uh had your sister um left uh, left fundamentalism your sister val my sister valerie has yes definitely we're both on a very similar journey so in fact i, I just talked to her last night she's coming over here next july nice. so i haven't seen her since before covid and everything so oh. really looking forward to catching up in person we chat on facebook messenger and things like that but 
yeah, she's on a real similar journey. But some of my other sisters, not so much, especially mm-hmm. one of my other sisters who's still very much into the fundamentalist thing. And going back to what you said, I mean, that sister that disowned my daughter, she was in a, a loveless sham of a marriage to a Christian man. Mm-hmm. And, and he finally passed away, even though she was absolutely miserable in the marriage, mm-hmm. but she couldn't get a divorce because there were no quote unquote biblical grounds for divorcing it, even though she was absolutely miserable and unhappy. Mm. And she he finally passed away, at which point then she was, of course, free to remarry in the eyes of the church. You think, God, I mean, you wasted 30-some years of your life being miserable and unhappy. Mm-hmm. Why? Because the Bible says you can't divorce this person. Yeah, yeah. Contrary to what Christians believe, there is actually no prize for being a martyr. This, this is, oh, you just muted yourself. Yes, I know. I was moving in my chair and I didn't want to squeak. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Yeah, no prize for being a martyr. This is um, the life that we have. So Mm. we better make the most of it. Uh, Mm -hmm. And that will look different for different people. What what was the hardest for you about um, divorcing religion? I think a lot of people will say this, and I think it's true for me too. It was sort of losing that fear of hell. That's probably mm-hmm. one of the biggest things to give up at the mm-hmm. very end. Mm-hmm. I could question whether or not there's a God and if the God of the Bible is the true God and everything else. I went down that road, but giving up the the fear of hell and the rapture, if all that's true, we're all we're in a lot of trouble, you know, Janice. Right. <laughs> you and I are definitely going to hell. Man. We're in the sure. bad books. Yeah, yeah we're in the bad books. We're not in the um, book of life, you know. And I grew up with a fear of the rapture and mm-hmm. everything else, mm-hmm. you know. So it's so hard to jettison that. And you think, okay, that's one of the final pieces that a lot of ex-evangelicals struggle to give up, I think. And I did too. How did you make your way? Um out of it how what helped you to be able to release that fear well honestly i mean reading i read that book love wins by rob bell Mm -hmm. and a lot of it is not so much making a case for the the fact that he thinks everyone's going to end up in heaven it's a lot of it is a biblical argument for that actually the bible doesn't really teach the view of hell that fundamentalism presents this fiery eternal torment and everything else eternal conscious torment and the flames of hell forever and ever and ever and there's no escape and everything else and he goes through and basically shows that actually that's that's an unbiblical view if you will and that was the first kind of step in going actually yeah what do i think the bible doesn't even present that view and then i was questioning the bible so Mm -hmm. if you're questioning the bible itself you go well on what basis am i you know uh, living out this phobia it's it's an implanted phobia it's something that cults do they they implant phobias in their adherence mm-hmm. to scare them and keep them in line mm-hmm. and this i think a lot of it is what this is this is like the ultimate trump card and if you take that away you remove that trump card then the whole thing starts to fall down doesn't it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yep that's very true um folks might be interested to know um, if you uh, retained a relationship with your parents after you rejected religion or if you let it go by the wayside the relationship with my parents well i did uh, but there were some other mitigating circumstances that came up Mm -hmm. whereby around about the time maybe four or five years after we moved to the uk Mm -hmm. it it came out that my father had basically molested my two oldest sisters when they were Mm -hmm. young girls Mm -hmm. and it's all kind of came out of the blue toward the end of his life so 
Unfortunately, I, well, I should say I've, I had to cut off my relationship with my mother after my father died Mm -hmm. because she ended up defending him and accusing us of making it all up. And, you know, the typical sort of attack and blame Mm -hmm. the victim, sort of the Darvo kind of approach to it all. Mm-hmm. And off the back of that, I finally said to her, look, I cannot be, I can't maintain a relationship with you because you're too toxic of a person. Mm-hmm. And so I have not spoken to my mom in probably seven or eight years. And uh, it's not necessarily to do with religion. It has more to do with how the situation with my dad went yeah. down in the end. Mm-hmm. And he since passed away. Now he was, mm-hmm. a. they were both staunch evangelicals. Mm-hmm. And I had one last conversation with him before he died. And I said, look, you know, you believe you're a Christian, you're going to go to heaven someday and you're going to stand before God. And he's going to say, look, you had a chance while you were alive to make all this right. You need to confess what you've done and, and you know, tell the truth to your victims and he didn't do it. He wouldn't do it. He took all the secrets to the grave with him, yeah. mm-hmm. you know? So in a way, religion did play a factor in it. Mm-hmm. Um, even though he turned his back basically on everything that he supposedly stood for all of his life. I mean, mm-hmm. he was a, an elder in the church. He was a, a worship leader. He played the piano. He was mm-hmm. very involved in the church all of his adult life, mm-hmm. you know, but he probably molested, you know, kids throughout the whole time. I would imagine. Wow. Yeah. That's such a hard, and I, think it is uh shockingly common yeah and but people don't talk about it there this um this goes on in families but because we have the idealized brady bunch view in our head leave it to beaver uh, idea of what family is supposed to look like um we we keep it hushed and we don't let people talk about it and come forward with these things so um i really commend you for the stand that you did take and for believing and supporting your sisters um Mm. that's really something and i've had a similar situation in my own life in my own family and the support uh, of my siblings has also been just really important Mm -hmm. and really helpful yeah. And I think it shows, like I was talking about the the religious piece of it, it shows the, the toxicity of religion and how it can, it's, it's, it's all pervasive in every aspect of our life. Because I remember talking to my dad when this all first started coming out, he originally started talking about, he said, well, the truth is I'm gay. That's what this is all about. I'm gay. And I've been, you know, living in the, in the closet my whole life. And, and he said, well, what I'm going to do is I know it's wrong. It's against the Bible. I'm going to go get rebaptized. I'm going to read my Bible every day. I'm going to go talk to the pastor. I'm going to do this, that, and the other thing. And I said, dad, I mean, if you're gay, that's not going to somehow cure you in air quotes, you know, make you straight. So even then, but it was all lies anyway. But I mean, that's the, the, the mentality that going and getting rebaptized and getting and reading your bible every day and all that is somehow going to cure you in air quotes Mm -hmm. whatever your addiction or problem is i mean so the whole thing was still shot through with religious concepts Mm -hmm. what's what's the best thing to you about um having divorced religion oh the best thing i think is living my life with that complete autonomy knowing that I take responsibility for my actions, my choices, my decisions. Yeah, I take the consequences for it too, but I have that freedom. I was talking to the guys from the, I was a teenage fundamentalist podcast the other day from Australia, and they said, this really hit hit home, you know, this idea that 
I'm a practical atheist. I don't read my Bible. I don't pray. I don't seek God. I don't call the pastor when I make a major life decision. Recently, I turned my notice in at work, and I'm I'm quitting my job, and I'm trying to start a new job. You know, I didn't pray about that. I didn't consult the Bible. I didn't read the. I didn't bring the pastor and ask for his advice. I talked about it with my girlfriend. We just talked through different scenarios. We made the best sort of informed decision, and I turned my notice in, and I've been you know in the process of transitioning out. You know, and it's just. There's there's stresses of course associated with that, but I'm I'm okay to accept the reality, whatever that means. Uh, you know, and that that's that would be a massive difference because I remember as an evangelical, I you know, you would pray and fast and read the Bible and talk to the pastor and mm-hmm. talk to wise Christians and everything else mm-hmm. to get and hopefully you'll find God's will. What's God's will in all this? And you never seem to know what it was, you know? Yeah. And yeah. so I'm thinking, I just made a decision to quit my job and try to get another job, mm-hmm. period. Just that's mm-hmm. the way it works. That's what I did. That's life. Exactly. Yeah. And it I may hear- work better and it may not, but I'm, I'll just get another job. If this one doesn't work out, that's, that's right. I'll do something different. Yes. There's a resilience Um That hopefully comes with age and maturity, uh, but that requires us to to take steps on our own along the way. And sometimes the things don't work out, and sometimes they work out great. And with each of those, we can be gaining confidence in our own ability to see and discern things uh, and figure out what to do. We don't need a pastor or a priest or someone telling us what to do. We don't need to base anything on the Bible since it's, you know, mythology um, anyway. And we need to see religions for what they are, which is mythology, which is people from long ago trying to come up with answers and guidelines for living their lives. And so, that's what they did. But this is what I'm doing, and it's completely different from that. And I feel great about it. What I do hear from people struggling with is, um, so they they no longer believe, and they are, um, lots of them become atheists. uh, But then, who do they pray to? That's the wonder. They say, oh, my, my, my grown adult child is having this health problem. And it used to be I would give all my concerns to God before going to bed at night and oh, I could fall asleep and I would just leave it in God's hands. Yes, yes, psychologically something is going on there. Uh, And then now they're like, where do I put this? What do I do uh, with this? And so I've said, well, you do reach out to a secular therapist. That's one way to handle things. And also um, speaking openly and candidly to your grown child. You can tell them, I love you so much, and I see this going on, and I'm concerned. And I want to know, is there anything I can do? How can I support you? Uh, But taking out that middleman is really, really hard for Mm -hmm. a lot of people. It really is. And yeah, you want to help them in so many ways, but actually praying, We, as we probably know (laughs) from our both (laughs) our shared experiences, I spent hours and days and months and years in fervent prayer. Yes. For what? You know, I've had relatives and friends die that I prayed for. Uh, I've never seen a miraculous healing. I've, you know, I spent hours and hours and hours in prayer for different outcomes and things, and it never happened. And there's always an explanation. Yeah. God, I'll, my fa- my f- phrase is God always gets off the hook. 
There's always mm-hmm. a way that, you know, it's never God's fault. It's, he's never to blame. The reason that person died, even though we prayed for him or her, was because, you know, he was trying to teach us a lesson about faith or trust in him, or he wanted that person to go to heaven. He wanted another angel in his choir. Oh, I mean, there's God. always yeah. some platitude. Yeah. And God is never to blame for it if he doesn't come through. And so I think God's okay, ways well, are higher than our ways. Yeah, God's ways are mysterious. We'll know someday when we get to heaven what yeah. the answer was. Why didn't you answer that prayer? Why didn't you heal her of the cancer that tore her apart, you know, mm-hmm. and suffered horribly? And on and on it goes. And you think, okay, well, what what good did that prayer actually do? It's a it's just a a magical thinking. That's what it is. That's yeah. actually what it is. It's magical and thinking, it's projection, mm-hmm. and that Makes kind of thing. Makes the prayer feel better. Makes yeah, the, makes pray, us the one feel who's good. praying feel better. Um, well, and I, I was going to say, it's, it's like every time there's a mass shooting in America, uh, what's the, the, the thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers? Mm-hmm. That hasn't stopped a single mass shooting yet that I can tell, no. you know, no. and there's, there's a lot of people praying that the next one won't happen, mm-hmm. and they do it after every one that happens, you know, so why isn't God stopping those mass shootings in America? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I... It is um, it is troubling right now seeing how divisive uh, things are, and it's not just in mm-hmm. America; it's around the world. Every is. nation is having to come to terms with magical thinking on some level. So in Canada, yeah. it's not as much the religious fervor now as it seems to be the the people who are embracing um, conspiracy uh, yeah. theories, and they are. Um, very pushy about it uh you know and there's it makes the tensions makes the tensions greater in an already tense situation because the Mm. pandemic made everyone um pretty tense so it's true there's a lot going on these days so then what what gives you hope in a in an age where it looks like there's so many things going crazy um what's giving you hope or um thinking positively about the future and potential yeah, thinking positive. That's a good point because I was going to say when we were talking about you know me switching jobs and things like that, mm-hmm. what gives me sort of positivity now is such ironic, uh, so such irony that I've been at this job for three and a half years, and in that time I've gotten experience teaching. I teach construction skills. That's what I do. I used to be a Bible college teacher, so I spent years and decades in you know higher education, getting all these degrees. All those degrees didn't serve me anything. They didn't do anything for me to get me a better job. Now, in the last three and a half years, I've earned three teaching qualifications and I've gotten more experience. So when I went into this interview at this new job, they they were like falling all over themselves to offer me this new job. And they said, because you've got these qualifications, you've got this experience. And I, I came out of the interview and I called my girlfriend. And I said, you know, that really blew my mind to see that how I've progressed professionally in the last three and a half years and that's made me a more valuable potential employee worth more money and you know everything else and i thought my god all those bible college degrees and all that stuff didn't do me any good at all so that gives me hope that you know the career path that i've taken is a positive one has nothing to do with the bible or theology or god it's just professional development it's just mm-hmm. career development um, mm-hmm. and it makes me feel more secure in myself 
that I did it. I, I'm the one who put in all the work. I didn't, I did all the coursework. I did all those classes. Mm-hmm. You know, I got those qualifications. I earned them mm-hmm. by my hard work mm-hmm. and, and effort, you know, so I didn't pray. I didn't, you know, all those kind of things. I didn't ask God for, and it just happened because I was in that context, right. you know? So I take responsibility for it. Yeah. I put in all the hard work, but I'm now seeing the benefit of all that effort in a more professional sense having that master's degree and PhD. I mean, people say, you've got a PhD. What the hell, man? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, what are you doing? But it I gives me a chance to tell that story, you know? Exactly. And the, um, so if, I hope we're allowed to say you, you, it looks like you'll be working in the prison system. That's true. And, and sharing the, the knowledge that you have teaching construction skills in there. Um, I'm really curious, and I'm sure you are too, what that's mm. going to be like, that environment environment. And so many folks yeah. who end up in prison, they become like a captive audience for preachers or whatever religion is yeah. allowed to go in uh, and promote their stuff. Yeah, their uh, and these people are so desperate uh that they gravitate towards it and you're going in there like, oof, yeah, none of that is going to touch me because that's not <laughs> what I'm about. And, and inmates yeah. will ask you about your life uh, sure. experience. So I think that's going to be really interesting. It is interesting. And I've, I've shared this story many times before. What, what ended up kind of getting me the job was my current job. I teach military veterans. So I teach mm-hmm. skills to military vets who are coming out of the army and the Navy and Royal Air Force and all that. And a lot of them have severe PTSD. Mm-hmm. So what they when they asked me, what makes you a good fit for this job at the prison? Yeah. I said, well, I mean, I'm not teaching prisoners, but they're talking about people who have mental health and well-being issues. Mm-hmm. So I see that very much as a pastoral role. In fact, I've just had a new cohort start a few weeks ago as, as we're doing this recording. And I've got a couple of guys in there that have kind of confided to me that they've struggled with PTSD and things. You know, so I've been able to support them again mm-hmm. in a non-religious sense. Yes. I give them the help that they need. I'm mm-hmm. connecting them with the support system that they need. And mm-hmm. one guy said to me the other day, he said, you know, I'm, I'm ashamed to have to admit that I have this problem. And I said, look, you know, this happened to you because you were serving in a combat zone. You saw mm-hmm. things, horrific, terrible things. Mm-hmm. You were forced to do terrible things. Mm-hmm. So it's not your fault. And it, you're, it's not a sign of weakness that you have these issues. Mm-hmm. So what we need to do now is get you the help that you need. You know, so he came up to me the other day and he said, just thank you so much for just helping me out and supporting yeah. me. And it's only been a couple of weeks into the course, right. you know, and I thought, okay, that's, that's what it's all about. And again, I didn't say, well, God's going to save you, brother. Right. <laughs> you right. Know? Yeah. Let's see what the Bible has to mm-hmm. say about your PTSD. Mm-hmm. You know, you approached him compassionately as a human as a humanist, yeah. you know, de-shamifying the thing he's saying he feels shame about, um, and also showing that you believe in his ability to yeah. do what needs to be done, and that's what it's like in the in the prison. You can be going in there; you might be the first person that these uh, inmates interact with who who believes in them in their ability yeah. to uh, learn the skills that you're teaching them and then apply them practically and potentially make a life yeah. for themselves outside of the prison uh, that they're yeah. in. It really is amazing because a couple of cohorts ago, I have, I teach six cohorts a year. Mm-hmm. I had a, a, a guy that went through the cohort about two and a half, three years ago before COVID. 
this is the guy that came out of Afghanistan. He was a, then he went back as a basically like a mercenary for the American government. Mm-hmm. He has severe combat PTSD. And he said he came back and spoke to, to, the, to the current cohort. And he said, you know, this course literally changed my life. He said, this was, and I, I was absolutely blown away when I heard him say that. He said, I came out of the military. I came out of that being a mercenary uh, and I was struggling. I, he put guys in the hospital mm. in bar fights and things like that because he was so, he would just rage and, and flip yeah. out. And he's a massive guy, huge guy, you know, so he could do a lot of damage. Mm-hmm. And he said, this course was the first thing I did out of therapy that was a positive thing in my life. And now He's got a job. He works. He does like uh, steel erecting, you know, for mezzanine floors mm-hmm. and, and warehouse pallet racking. He's running eight crews around the country. He's making good money. Wow. He's just doing so well. And I just sat there. I thought, okay, I mean, I had a small part to play in his sort of Absolutely. transformation. And again, it's totally a secular thing. I didn't, mm-hmm. you know, pray with him or mm-hmm. give him a Bible tract or anything like wow. that, you know. Wow, that is really exciting. I, I think yeah. that's just fantastic. I'm glad that he shared that and you got to hear that. Oh, man. That's, that's yeah. a really positive way for you to be uh, ending your uh, job in the, yeah. in the college that, that you've been in, yeah. to know that you have impacted people positively and yeah. made a difference in their lives. It really it really is. And it's it's that's probably the one thing I'm going to miss the most is you know, that's why I quit the job for a number of reasons, but that's what kept me there as long as it did. Because like my girlfriend said, you know, teaching that course ticks pretty much every box for you. Yeah. You know, you get to teach, you get to have a laugh, you put your music on in the workshop. We have a fun time. We I create a really fun, healthy, fun, you know, environment in there. Yeah. But they are learning something and there's that sort of pastoral side, but it's it's with that non-religious piece. And you get that consistent feedback that actually this is a really positive thing. And a lot of people with PTSD come out and say, it is life-changing. I had one woman, she was an army surgeon who served in Afghanistan and operated on severely wounded soldiers and civilians and has severe, severe PTSD Mm -hmm. from what she saw and had Mm -hmm. to go through as a Mm -hmm. surgeon. And she said, again, this course was the first thing I did that was something where I could work with my hands. And while I'm, you know, plastering a wall or or sawing a piece of wood or, or whatever it was, I wasn't thinking about my PTSD. And it was mm-hmm. it was the first time where I could sort of disassociate. And, and then at the end of the day, I go, I made that. I built that with my own two hands. Mm-hmm. And it was a positive thing, you know. So she, you know, it was just an inspirational thing. So, yeah, it, it is making a difference. And if there is any group that we can be fairly sure uh, will struggle with PTSD, it's it's people who are incarcerated because it is yeah, a very, absolutely. very difficult uh, communal living um, situation yeah. to be in. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think you can you're gonna have the opportunity <laughs> to do a lot of good in there we as, will a, see. as a non pastor. Yeah. I'm not bringing my Bible in there. <laughs> That's, <right. laughs> That's for no. sure. Well, this has been really interesting. It's always such a joy to connect with you. Thanks for coming on the Divorcing Religion podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And I was going to say before we go, we should think about doing a reciprocal part one, part two again. So maybe we could do a part two on my podcast and then people could have to listen to that other half. So we need awesome. to maybe put our heads together on that too. We can promote yeah. your show as well. 
I love it. That's a great idea. And I will just um, remind viewers and listeners to uh, subscribe to the Conference on Religious Trauma YouTube channel so you never miss an episode of the Divorcing Religion podcast. And of course, to pick up your tickets for Shameless Sexuality, Life After Purity Culture, that conference is coming up in less than a month. And if you feel so moved, I welcome you to support me on Patreon. And the links for all those are in the show notes. And we'll also have a link to Clint and anything he wants to share. So whether about, um, well, people want to know how to find you and also how to find your excellent podcast. So you can give me all that information and we'll keep it in the show notes. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Shannon. Again, I've always, I always love meeting with you. I wish we could meet in person. You've got a place to stay. Anytime, come to visit me in North Wales. (laughs) Free lodging. You can't beat it. All right. I'm just about on my way. (laughs) Okay. Buy your tickets now. Take care. (laughs) Thanks, Janice. Bye.